Today's scripture comes from Matthew 7, 1 through 5. It says, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is the word of the Lord. We are in a series where we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. We've been here for, I don't know, 25 weeks or so, and uh, we've got a few more weeks to go. And we're just trucking our way through Matthew uh, chapters 5 through 7. And what we're looking at is Jesus' sermon that he preached. It's really kind of the only monologue-style sermon that Jesus preaches to a group of people. And we're calling it Manifesto because we think uh, that it is almost a manifesto of sorts of the Christian life. In a lot of ways, Jesus redefines and takes to the heart level uh, what it means to live as one of his followers. And today, uh, we're looking, as you can tell from the, the text that we read, uh, at what it means uh, to, to be judging or not to be judging as a follower of Jesus. I know this uh, firsthand. I'm right here with you. Uh, here's here's kind of what happened on New Year's Eve with our family. Uh, we were in Indianapolis with some good friends of ours. And we were partying it up as a family. In fact, we even had a bounce house in the basement of some of our best friend's house. Sounds like a good time, right? You think it's just for the kids, it was for the adults too. It was a great, it's a great time. And, uh, and here were the words right before we put the kids to bed. Daddy, can we jump just one last time? And so we took the kids downstairs like any good parents would do on New Year's Eve because all bets are off on New Year's Eve. And we let the kids jump in the bounce house. But it wasn't enough for the kids to jump in the bounce house. They wanted the dads to participate in the jumping in the bounce house. And so we kind of get in and are jumping in the bounce house with them. And my son Caden's like, hey, why don't you, why don't you like pick me up and help me jump a little higher? And so, like any good father, I listen to my son's request and we begin jumping and jumping higher, and I kind of drop him like this, and all of a sudden he comes up and he says, I can't feel my arm! I'm going to die! And it was pretty serious, and so at first it looked like it was dislocated, and so let me, I said, come here son, let me pop it back into place for you. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I, I did think it, but I, I didn't actually do it, and you know, it was a pretty serious accident, and so... We did what any family would like to do on New Year's Eve. We went to the Children's Hospital in Indianapolis. And while we were there, the doctor comes in with the photos of the x-ray. I'm not going to put those on the screen because you won't want to eat lunch. He says, okay, so there's three types of fractures, breaks. Uh, there's one that's, that's the one with the broken arm. Uh, <laughs> so there's three types, you know, there's, you know, minor, then there's kind of moderate, and then there's serious. And they're like, he has a very serious fracture in his arm, and so... Anyway, he broke his arm, and the doctor comes in, and he says, hey, you know, Caden, what happened? And he's, you know, kind of still out of it, and uh, he goes, <laughs> he goes, we were jumping in the bounce house, and my dad threw me and broke my arm. <laughs> I knew this was a dangerous story to share this morning with him in here, and I immediately 
felt condemnation and judgment from everyone that was in the room. All of these you know, thoughts are going uh, through my head. Uh, my name, my reputation, my suitability as his father from the medical staff. And I, I'm tempted to like try to curate his narrative to be a little bit more favorably sounding for me, right? I'm tempted uh, to do that. And everything, I wanted to protect myself and say this, don't judge me. Only God can judge me. Don't judge me. And you have situations, kind of moving in a more serious tone now, you have situations in your life that have happened where you think, man, people are just judging me because they heard this, they saw this, that, you know, they thought about this with me. And, and, and what it's like when you, get, you are judged by someone is that someone takes a slice out of your life, a snapshot out of your life, and they make a pronouncement, a declaration that is forever on you, right? That's what it's like to be judged. So, as Christians, we are tempted to jump in an opposite ditch whenever we hear Jesus say, judge not lest you be judged. When we hear Him say that, we're tempted to jump in this other ditch, which is an overcorrection, which is this convictionally flimsy, reductionistic, spineless approach to living as followers of Jesus. And it looks like this. We're just not going to judge, have a judgment about anything because we don't want to be all judgy, right? We can jump in that ditch. In fact, the majority of people that hear the words of Jesus, uh, and some of them followers of Jesus, some of them not, will quote these things when they feel like you're going to judge them. And we will jump in this other ditch where we say, don't judge me. And we are... We are in this place where we are not open to any criticism. We're not open to any rebuke, to, re, you know, to reprove for any of the things that God calls us to. That's what most people think that this passage is about. However, I contend with you that this passage uh, this morning is actually about exactly the opposite of that. In fact, Jesus says that we should care so much about one another that we're willing to do whatever it takes in our own lives to help each other follow Jesus more effectively together. He calls us to do whatever it takes so that we can help each other follow Jesus together. Doesn't that read differently when you think about that text? It sounds a lot different, doesn't it? So Jesus therefore lays out the greatest principle that we could ever hear about how to love and lead others gently in life. He says it's a mistake of order, not concern. So here's where our big idea comes from today. We have to see ourselves as God does before we can see others the way that He sees them. So I've got three things that I want to say surrounding this text. The first one is this. It's a really good one. In Jesus, we all get judged. Isn't that really good news this morning? In Jesus... We all get judged. And I'm not kidding. This is the best news you will hear all day. The fact that Jesus Christ will judge you is a very good, good thing. So what is judgment? Judgment, judgment is this. Judgment is a divine response to a human action. It's a divine response to a human action. That's why it is so dangerous for us to pronounce judgment against people. Because we're proclaiming something that only God can proclaim on people's lives. It is not a sin to have judgments, though. There's a difference 
there. And Jesus kind of talks about those. So as a culture, we see judgment as this, as this bad thing. Um, but for those that are in Jesus, it is the best news you will ever receive. It's the gospel. And the reason that it's the gospel is this, is that Jesus no longer, God no longer counts our sin against us when we are judged with a measure of Jesus' righteousness applied to our lives by faith. So when God sees us, He doesn't see us as utterly despicable, disgraceful individuals. He sees us as perfectly righteous. There's two judgments that the Scriptures talk about here. The first one, uh, I'm not going to go there today, but uh, it comes from Revelation chapter 20. It's what a lot of people call the great white throne judgment or the, the judgment that determines belief from unbelief. Matthew 13 speaks of it in the, in the parable uh, of, of the wheat and the tares, and he, and he talks about how they'll grow together until the end of the time, and then there'll be a separation. It alludes to this judgment that will happen from belief to unbelief. And when we think about Jesus, I think about a couple verses that seem to kind of contradict one another when we think about judgment. In John 3.17, which is right after John 3.16, which most people in here probably know, for God so loved the world that he, that he sent his only son that all would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.17 then says this, for God did not send his son into the world to judge the world. What do you mean, Ryan? You just said that he did. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Okay, so we read that, it seems contradictory to what your pastor just said, right? But then we hold it in tension with John 9.39, which says, For judgment I came into the world, Jesus says, that those who do not see may see. He's just healed a blind man in this uh, situation here. And those who see may become blind. So what Jesus is saying is that, is that his primary aim in being sent by his Father from heaven into the world, taking on flesh entering into our neighborhood into our story his primary aim was not to draw a line between belief and unbelief that was a result of what his primary aim was his primary aim was to come into the world and to love sinners unto life to a judgment unto life not a judgment unto death but when unbelief occurs in our life and we don't have faith in the risen work of jesus and what he's done on our behalf, and therefore it's not credited to our lives, we can't help but be eternally judged. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now Matthew 7 is not particularly talking about this judgment between belief and unbelief. The reason that we know that is because this, this particular text, the Sermon on the Mount was directed at disciples of Jesus. Those who were already following Jesus. And so there's the second judgment that the Scriptures talk about. And this judgment is different than the great, the great, what we call the great white throne judgment because it's directed at believers, followers of Jesus. And it's known as the judgment seat of Christ. It's, it's what will happen uh, to, to followers of Jesus at the, at the end of their lives. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 says it like this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So this, this judgment is more about sanctification and eternal reward than it is belief and unbelief. I don't, I don't think we should have, when it comes to the judgment of, 
judgment seat of Christ and, and what it will look like for the follower of Jesus who has faith in him at the end of time. I don't think God intends for us to come toward him with pounding hearts, wondering if we've made the cut or not. You mean, he's, he's done more work than that in our lives. He's given us security that we can know that the work of Jesus is sufficient and it's not based on us. And if it's not based on us and our obedience, then we're secure. Because the work of Jesus is finished, he said. Even though he's still working through us with the Spirit sanctifying us. And so, I, I, you know, I don't think we should, we should think about the end of time and judgment as those who follow Jesus thinking about all of our dirty laundry being aired out before God at the end of time. Psalm 103 says He's cast our sins as far away as the east is from the west. But rather, the judgment seat of Christ is about a judgment of rewards. He's saying that what you do today eternally matters. What comes from you will eventually come to you. He's saying. And so we pick up in Matthew 7 with that in mind about judgment in general and how it is a good thing for those in Jesus. Because Jesus was judged on our behalf, church. The, the, great, the great white throne judgment is behind us because all of God's displeasure against sin was poured out on Christ. Even the things you have not yet committed, the sins you have not yet committed as a follower of Jesus, have already been judged and dealt with in, in Jesus. The cross, there's, no, there's no further punishment past the cross. What could be worse than the cross being ripped apart from the inside for sin that you didn't commit? What could be worse? It's already finished in Jesus. Matthew 7, 1, 2, we pick up and it says this. Judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So Jesus is saying He will judge our lives. But it won't be belief and unbelief for those that follow Him. So we don't have to worry there. But what we do need to be concerned about is our obedience. Because our obedience has an eternal effect. Is what He's saying here. And in our judgments of others, the enemy almost always tempts us to be stingy with grace. And we have temptations in these areas to be stingy with grace to, to look at someone else and to think man how could you do that and to miss out what's actually going on in our own hearts and so Jesus he, he presses in a little more deeply with this and so we pick up knowing that you and I are to live from a place of judgment with Jesus because when you've been judged, and you've been judged as perfectly righteous, you live differently than someone who has been judged as not a follower of Jesus. Because then it's up to you. And there's no hope because there's nothing we can do. And so we are to make judgments in life in light of what Jesus has done and the judgment we receive in Him, which is extremely favorable and really good news. So second point is this. In Jesus... We all have to deal with the plank. We all have to deal with the plank. So Jesus, in Matthew 7, uh, 1 through 5, 
paints this almost ridiculous picture, this, this hyperbole, okay, this exaggerated example to prove a point about our tendencies and how we relate to other people and their sin versus how we relate to our own sin. He, he says, uh, you know, how are we to help one another follow Jesus? Well, you know, we're not supposed to just sweep it under the rug because that's not what God did with Jesus. We're not to minimize the cross and the conflict that we experience in our relationships. So he goes on to, to, to paint the picture of what it needs to look like for us. He says, why do you, Matthew 7, verse 3 through 5, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when the, there's a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will clearly see to take the speck out of your brother's eye. See, it reads differently when you think about the fact that God desperately wants us to help each other follow Jesus together, doesn't it? He, he's not saying that you should never look at the speck. He's just saying you shouldn't ever look at the speck without first looking at the plank. That's what it needs to look like as we love one another and care for one another and help each other follow Jesus. So over the holidays, uh, I was around some family and friends and we were having a good time uh, at my family's house. And, uh, and you know how, how it goes. We're together for more than a couple days. Conflict arose, okay? And it was the type of conflict where I wanted to stay in the room for about two minutes and God called me to stay in the, in the room for about an hour, you know, way past the position of comfort. You know what I mean? The heat was rising in the situation. And so here's what happened. Two people were engaged in a, in, in, in a, in a confrontation and I walked into the room like this. We interrupt this podcast to bring you some important visual context. Pastor Ryan is holding up a six-foot-long board to his eye, and he is swinging it about wildly as he describes his interactions with these people. We now return you to the podcast already in progress. And I was, I was walking into the room, and I was talking to him, and I was saying, Hey guys, uh, I'm going to help you guys resolve this situation. And so, and so what I did was I went over to this person and I said, Hey, here's what I think you should do. I think you should probably go and apologize because what you said was a little bit offensive and I think you should own a little bit of, of what happened in that situation. And then I went over to this person and I said, I said, you know what? You know, here's where this person was coming from over here. And I think if you could just be a little bit more understanding, then things might be uh, a little more smooth for the rest of the week. What do you say? And then God, in His kindness, reminded me of Matthew chapter 7. He reminded me of the fact that here I am trying to help two people follow Jesus together. And really, what, I'm, what I really want it's just the absence of conflict in the house. That's what my deep desire is. But God wants reconciliation, which is so much better than the absence of conflict, right? You can have the absence of conflict without reconciliation. It just means you don't love one another. That's what it means. And so God reminds me in this situation that, that these two people that I'm talking about, that there's one of them that I don't really want to win in life. I'm not really for them. I don't really want to see them thrive in Christ. 
Because they should know better. They've been following Jesus long enough to know better. And God shows me that this plank is the size of a six by six sticking out of my eye. And how could I try to help other people follow Jesus together when I haven't even looked at myself? And so God convicted me in that moment. And I walked away with this question. How can a recklessly blind person possibly help someone else follow Jesus? And Jesus says that anytime there's conflict, anytime there's confrontation, situations like this that make us uncomfortable, where we want to say, don't judge me, that there's work that he wants to do, and the work that God wants to do in you is often going to come through you seeing someone else's sin. Isn't that good news? You see, we're really good at seeing other people's sin. We're really good at seeing how other people have messed up. We are masters of it, aren't we? Shake your head, because you are. You're a master. And and we're really good at seeing this, but Jesus teaches us that he's really good at showing us what's going on in our own hearts through the sin that we see in others. Church, we are most likely to condemn in others what we hate in ourselves. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but I want you to think back and maybe a time this morning, uh, right now, or this week that you've judged someone in your heart and you've thought, man, how could they do this? And think about what it touches in your heart. What does it surface in your heart? What does it surface in your life? And it's probably something that you've been struggling with. It's probably something that maybe you know better than to do. (laughs) I've matured past that. And so you judge them. Or it's something you, th- you think, I would never do that in someone's life. And Jesus has the same answer for us all. You've got to do plank work before you can do spec work. And both of them are crucial in you and others following Jesus. Both of them are crucial. We've got to do both of the work. In, in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul uh, talks about the body of Christ. There's a few places in the Scripture that talk about the body. Romans 12 is one. Um, there's a place in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians as well that talk about the body of Christ and how it works together and the gifts that God gives us. And Romans 12.3 uh, says something really interesting that I think goes along with what we've been looking at. He says this, For by the, bra- the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So Paul uses this phrase, sober judgment. What's it mean? What's what's sober? It means realistic judgment about yourself. And and what he's saying about the scripture is that the way that we see ourselves in light of God's demands for our lives and how those demands are fulfilled, meaning how, how much we value Jesus is what we're saying here, how much how much faith we have and that we need him for breath and for life and for godliness and all of those things, that your judgment of yourself is going to be uh, directly correlated to that faith. That's what he's saying here. And he's saying the, the way that you see yourself is going to determine how you handle yourself in light of that. So the more mature, mature spiritually person is going to have a greater measure of faith, meaning that they see that they're actually more sinful than they ever thought that they could be. But because of the judgment of Jesus, 
they are more righteous than they could dare to imagine to be, right? That's, that's what he's saying here. I'm reminded of uh, a story that, uh, that G.K. Chesterton uh, shares. Uh, and, 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 you know, this was uh, over 100 years ago where uh, G.K. Uh, is reading this newspaper article and they're inquiring in this newspaper. They're, they're saying, hey, what's wrong with the world? And they're like getting people to write in. I mean, it's like, it's like Facebook except like 100 years ago, right? Like those opinions. I mean, if you want to see an opinion, go to Facebook. You're going to find more than you want. So they're like looking for these opinions. What's wrong with the world? People are giving these crafty answers. And G.K. Chesterton writes back and he says this. Hey, dear sirs, regarding your inquiry of what's wrong with the world, I am sincerely G.K. Chesterton. But how true is that? We want to look outside of ourselves. We want to look at the sin that's in other people's lives and say, that's what's wrong with the world. If we could just get rid of that, if we could just help those people stay away from us, we could protect ourselves from those situations, then the world would be a better place. G.K. says, the most dangerous thing is not what's outside of you or what's inside of you. Jesus says the same thing when he talks about the speck and the plank. So this verse in Romans 12 is given in context of the body of Christ. How does the body live together? How does it work together? How does it help the whole body win? How does one part help the whole body win in life? And he's basically saying that if we were to see ourselves with sober judgment, realizing that we all need way more grace than we think that we do, that Jesus might give more faith for us to believe that, what if we all saw ourselves on the struggle bus of grace, you know? We can't do it alone. That person can't do it alone. My sin looks a little different than theirs, but I can't judge their sin because my sin's probably worse, right? He's saying if you have that posture in your relationships, in the places that you work, in your marriage, with your kids, that you're probably going to sin less and honor Jesus more, is what he's saying. That's probably going to be the outcome of that. To have sober judgment of ourselves is to make much room for charitable, charitable judgment of others. You see that you need more grace than you need, than you know you need. You see, you give others more grace than they think they need. And it changes everything about how you relate to others. And we haven't even got to the other people yet. We're just still with ourselves, right? So Jesus says, you got to do this first. And this has got to be a principle for life because... You know, I'm reminded of what Roy Hessian says in his work uh, called The Calvary Road. He says, basically, the plank that we have in our eye is a response to the speck that we see. That's what the plank is. So the plank is growing every time we see the speck. And there's, there's no way for God to get to the things that are in our heart that he wants to deal with unless we see the speck. Because we see the speck, we hit pause, we say, okay, where's the plank? Let me find it. We start hunting it down. That's what he calls us to do. Lastly, in Jesus, we cannot neglect the speck. This is the part directed after we've dealt with our own sin to help one another follow Jesus together. When we ask ourselves the question, we make the statement that the world around us loves to make, who am I to judge? Only God judges. When we say that, what we're doing is we are circumventing the possibility of the Holy Spirit working in our relationships to a favorable outcome that could only be possible by grace. When we say, no, 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 I'm just not going to judge, I'm not even going to enter into this that God's invited me into. 
We are, we are cutting ourselves out of the possibility to be used by God and to be changed by God. And so when, you, when God brings that up, to, you know, and then someone, the, you're in a relationship that you love, you've got to enter into it. Roy Hessian says this in his, in his work at Calvary Road. How do I feel when I hear about uh, others' weaknesses? Well, according to the New Testament, we are meant to care so much for the other man that we are willing to do all that we can to remove from his eye the moat which is marring his vision and, hinder his bless- and hindering his blessing. We are told to admonish one another. Paul says this, to exhort one another, to wash one another's feet, Jesus tells us to do, and to provoke one another to love and good works. The love of Jesus poured out in us will make us want to help our brother in this way. We cannot neglect the speck, church. It's not about pronouncing judgment, but it's about gently loving one another. It's spurring one another on to be changed by God. So, so how do we know if we're pronouncing judgment against someone else? Instead of entering in, you know, how do we know if we're entering into a conversation with a planked eye or a clean eye? How do we know? Well, I found this diagnostic question to be helpful. It it typically comes from ultimatums like, he always does this, or she could never do that, or things like that. Do you hear the degree of finality that we have in those statements? You do, right? You hear those things. Those types of statements are always made from a logged eye. It's got this six by six piece of wood sticking right out of its eye. You can't see. The whole thing that Jesus is after is helping us to be able to see clearly. That's what he's after. He's not necessarily after the speck or the log. He's after our hearts, and he's, we've got to be able to see clearly. We've got to be able to see ourselves clearly and see others clearly to help one another follow Jesus. Another diagnostic question would be something like this. Am I pleased to receive negative news about others' sin? Does it just warm my heart when I see that somebody else blew it big time? We've been there. That's why none of us are laughing, right? Or do I look at others' sin with contempt and say, at least I'm not dealing with that? Hmm. We've all been there, church. Whether we've said it or we've thought it, we've been there. Jesus is saying that when we're actually able to see ourselves, we might actually be able to see other people. If we always feel like we have to protect ourselves and we're never open to correction, church, it's a dangerous place to be. It's really hard to receive correction. It's really hard to think about the possibility that we could be wrong about something that seems so certain, right? Jesus is saying if you walk that way consistently, you're in a dangerous place. You're in a dangerous place because how can your brothers and sisters love you if you're not teachable? If there's never a possibility that you could be wrong in a situation, how can your brothers and sisters love you if they see a speck? Another overcorrection for us could be to just not even get in relationships where someone could be close enough to see a speck. That's another dangerous place to be, right? But we see that vulnerability... And humility is where the, the, the power of the gospel is most clearly revealed throughout history. The power of the gospel is not most clearly revealed through very strong people that never mess it up. It's always revealed through weakness. This is why Jesus says to Paul when he's asking to take this, this thorn out of his flesh in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, he says, you know, Paul, I know that you want this. I know that you want this thing out of your life. We don't even know what it is, but something that causes him trouble. But he says, listen, my power... 
Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. It's made perfect in weakness. So when we put ourselves in places where we're so covered up and protected that no one could see the faults in our lives, we're just cutting out the power of God in our lives. We're cutting out the fellowship with the body. Jesus says we've got to enter into this. Because of the gospel, there's grace for all of us to grow. In fact, if we're not sinning against one another, we're probably not really sharing life. Let's be honest, right? We're that simple. So we should expect to have to deal with logs and specks. I mean, in everyday life, with your kids, obviously, with your, with your spouse, obviously, with your community as well. If the world saw us deal graciously with logs and specks in our own body, how inviting would that be for a lost world to think, man, they, maybe there's grace for me in this community. Maybe that's a, a possibility. What would it look like, church, for you to be someone who's secure enough to walk with Jesus where you would be open to loving correction in your lives, to gentle loving correction? What would it look like? What would you have to change in your life? What would you have to confess in your life? What would you have to do away with in your life? What positions would you have to put yourself in to live that kind of a life, church? As Christians, we should be the type of people that expect this because it's how God grows us. It's how God set up the whole church. He anticipated our fallenness to show itself in many different forms and fashions. And He says you've got to deal with the log and the speck. It's just what you've got to do. I'm reminded of Jude chapter 21, verses 20, or 21 through 23, where Jude, where the scripture said this keep yourself in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Hear that language. Let me read it again. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To show others mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Church, whenever we do plank and we do speck work in our lives and the lives of others, we are being snatched from the fire by Jesus when we do plank work. And we do speck work. We are snatching other people out of the fire. God's entrusted that type of work to his church. It's all by the power of the Holy Spirit, but there is an effort involved as we help each other follow Jesus. It's a big idea to kind of wrap this whole thing up is this. We have to see ourselves as God does before we can see others the way that he does. There's this, there's this story that Jesus tells in... Um, John chapter 8. And so Jesus was, he was in the synagogue. One, early one morning, he was teaching. And, um, and there are these people that came up to him and, and wanted to learn from Jesus. It's a pretty common thing. And, and as, he was, as he was teaching them, the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they come in and they bring this person that had been caught in some really bad sin. Like caught in the act of doing the sin. Not just hearsay, but like they actually caught this person sinning. And, and they said, you know, hey, the law, they brought her in, uh, shamed her in front of everyone, and they said, hey, the law of Moses says we, we should stone this lady. She should be killed for sin. That's what the law of Moses says. And so they bring her in and they say, Jesus, what do you say? You say you have come to fulfill the law. The law says we should kill this lady. What do you say? And here's what Jesus says. It's a plank and law, it's a plank and a speck kind of a statement. He says, 
Let he who is without sin cast the first stone. That's what he says. And you know what begins to happen? Is one by one, Jesus is standing next to this lady, one by one, they begin to peel off. And I don't know how long it takes, but pretty soon, the only people that are standing there is this really sinful woman and this really holy Savior. Church, Jesus is the one that absorbs the stones of our sin. It's what He does. It's what He's always done. It's what He always will do for you and I. Our lives deserve judgment, but in Jesus we are judged so favorably. What would it look like for you this week to live that out? Let's pray. Our Father, we we come to You and we just declare that... uh, that man, we are messed up, God. <laughs> that, uh, that we've probably thought of more sin, even as we've heard your word, than we could possibly confess today. And the beautiful thing is, is God, you know that about us. You know us. You haven't made us to try to be God on our own. Spiritual maturity is not about having this perfect record. It's about having this forgiven record. And it's about pressing into the love of Jesus and trusting Him with everything that we have. And so God, this morning we ask that You would help us to walk with sober judgment about ourselves. That that we would be so willing to love one another that we'd lay down our own pride and look at ourselves before we ever try to help someone else. But God, I pray that we would be so diligent to help one another follow Jesus. So you've met us in a profound way this morning, Jesus. And we we thank you for your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.